HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Julia Child Award recipient, restaurateur, and chef Rick Bayless. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Rick about how Mexican food is the recipe for his success, getting collected by the National Museum of American History, and we'll hear Rick's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, in our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was certainly the inspiration for the Julia Child Award. Julia wrote influential and enduring cookbooks. Julia created groundbreaking food television. Julia helped Americans better appreciate French food. Julia inspired Americans to keep cooking at home and to understand where their food comes from. And so, 
the foundation set out to recognize those individuals who were closely following in Julia's footsteps, making significant contributions to American food culture, just as Julia did. In the process, we've discovered there are even a select few who are outdoing Julia. One of these culinary superheroes is Chef Rick Bayless. The Julia Child Award jury chose Rick as the award's second recipient in 2016 in recognition of his outsized and ongoing contributions. Rick's list of accomplishments and accolades is so long that we could spend the entire show just listing them. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to give you a few highlights. His Michelin-starred Chicago restaurant, Topo Lobampo, put Mexican fine dining on the American map. His PBS television series, Mexico, One Plate at a Time, now in its 12th season, has received multiple Emmy nominations. He's authored nine cookbooks. He's won Bravo's Top Chef Masters. Frontera Grill, the restaurant that started his ever-expanding restaurant group, celebrated its 32nd year in business and is still topping best of list. If that's not enough, Rick continues to add to his philanthropic pursuits. He joins us today at the Smithsonian Food History Weekend and for the 2019 Food History Gala, honoring Chef Jose Andres as the fifth Julia Child Award recipient. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Thank you so much, Todd. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be in D.C. and to be looking forward to going to this great gala tonight. Yes, I agree. I agree. I'm glad you're excited since you've done it already. I have done it already, and I will say any time to go to Smithsonian, um, especially to see um, American stuff. I really, I just love to see the complexity and richness of our culture, and the very fact that Julia's Kitchen is there, and there really is a beautiful light shown on American food I, I, and the history of American food and how diverse we are. I think that is just super cool. And, of course, to be amongst all the recipients of the Julia Child Award is a real honor as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so being a recipient and mm-hmm. kind of now you now when you started, you were quite early in the process. Right. But now there's a wider group. Like, looking back on it, how does sort of becoming a recipient and join, now joining what is a larger group, how does that feel? What does that mean to you? Well, I, I will say that the award means a really, uh, a, a very... It's a very important thing for me because um, without Julia, I would not be where I am today. Um, The truth of the matter is that when I was a kid growing up in a barbecue restaurant family in Oklahoma City, Julia came on what was then called educational television when I was uh, 10 years old. And I had always loved hanging out in my family's restaurant kitchen um, I did my first jobs for, for money by the time I was like seven. And so I, I really had it in my blood. My grandmother was a really good cook, and I learned a tremendous amount from her. I, I really just loved cooking with anyone. But I had read, and my next-door neighbor gave me a book called uh, Cooking Around the World, and it was a children's cookbook. And that opened my eyes to the fact that there were all of these different traditions and flavors all around the world. But I got, when Julia came on the scene, I, I got the opportunity to see in depth in those very first shows, the ones that were called The French Chef, um, and I got to really see in depth the technique of making things, and my eyes were opened, more than just my eyes, my whole world was opened up. And I understood that 
things could go beyond just these wonderful flavors I had grown up with, and that they could bring this real level of of meticulous precision <laughs> to cooking, even though everybody laughed and said Julia was always the one that was sort of um, slapdash with things. But what she turned out, I, I think she sort of did that. I mean, it was natural to her, but she did that to make everybody feel comfortable. But I loved the precision with which she worked and talked. And without that, I wouldn't be where I am today. So even when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, I, I bought the Mastering the Art of French Cooking Volume 1 when I was 11, okay? And I saved up my <laughs> money, an and that's, that's what I really wanted to do. Um, and I cooked through it. Um, I still cook through it. I still think it's an amazing book. And so really, without Julia, and I wouldn't be where I am. And so having received this award was like, I, I was sort of pinching myself because for me, it it's saying that what was the greatest influence on me, I had sort of come full circle where I was contributing the same kinds of things that Julia was contributing to the world. And um, when I wrote my first book, what did I do? I studied every one of her books because I, when I the way she wrote recipes, of course, was novel when she wrote it, but um, she, she really taught so much. And a good friend of mine had visited her when she was one of my very favorite books of hers is the one that's called From Julia's Kitchen. And um, my, one of my good friends knew her and had visited her when she was working on that. And um, I'll, I'll never forget the story she came back with because I thought it was sort of iconically Julia and should be for all the rest of us. Um, everybody said that James Beard would um, keep uh, measuring spoons and measuring cups by his typewriter so that he could make sure that he was getting the right quantities and stuff. But Julia had to have the smell of whatever it was she was writing about around her. And so my friend visited her when she was working on breads, and she was just letting bread rise in the background <laughs> all the time so that she could smell that yeasty stuff, and it would inspire the words that she would write. And I thought that that was just spectacular because... I'm very much that same way. I'm really inspired by aromas and smells. And I, I, I thought when I heard that, it's like, I love this woman even more. That's amazing. I've never heard that before. I mean, it makes perfect <laughs> sense. But, and that's a really great encapsulation of what the award is all about, mm -hmm. of, of what we were looking for. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Now, I wanted to ask you something. So receiving the award comes with a few strings attached, actually. You know, while we give you a nice copper pan and we make a $50,000 grant to a food-related nonprofit you support, we also ask you for things in return, which is a little bit different other than just showing up than other awards. So notably, one of the things we ask you for is to work with the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, mm -hmm. as you were talking about, and they ask for some of your stuff and not just any stuff, they want your personal stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to talk to you about what, what what is that like to have them sort of take your things and enshrine them in America's most important history museum? I will say that it was I, I approached the project with uh, I was uh, with great sense of honor and trepidation <laughs> because it's like wow some of my stuff's going to be in the Smithsonian I can't believe that and. I don't want to give that up. Yeah. And for me, because my background after growing up in a in a barbecue restaurant, after 
um, doing all of the explorations in sort of international cooking, mostly focused on French, inspired by Julia's work. Then I got really, really into Latin American culture, mostly Mexican culture. And I started visiting Mexico, ended up majoring in Spanish language, literature, Latin American studies when I was in college, then went to graduate school in anthropology and linguistics. And um, as, as I finished my PhD work, um, I was starting to work on my, my dissertation, and my whole life changed. I mean, drastically changed, including the guy that I had gone to study with, um, unexpectedly retired, and there was nobody in my department that would support the kind of work that I wanted to do. And so I was really left out in the cold. Um, and I decided at that point that I'd take a year off from that, see what I wanted to do. And in that year, I really, I had to come to grips with the fact that my love is more for culture and food than culture and language. And that's what I was studying in, in my graduate work. And so I went to Mexico um, with the idea of spending a year there. My wife and I saved up all, all our money and decided we were going to move to Mexico for a year. And we were going to, during that that year, write a book on regional Mexican cooking. Well, it, it eventually stretched out to five years that we were there. And we traveled to every single state in the Mexican Republic and um, cooked with local cooks, documented everything that was in the marketplaces and the menus in small um, family-owned restaurants, regional restaurants. And um, at the end of that, we just had massive amounts of material. And it was that material that is the heart of what I I donated to. I was going to say, what you just described is a museum collector's yes. dream. Just like yes. Julia was, she documented everything. And, and everything know, just that in I, case you become successful. Everything <laughs> that I did, um, I, I we had dates on it all, locations, um, any anecdotes, they're all in there. This was before the time of computers. All of this would be fairly easy stuff to do on a computer. <laughs> but um, if you can believe this, through our travels, I traveled with a small manual typewriter and I typed everything. I would I would scribble notes and then I would go and I would sit on park benches or driving in the car. My wife would drive and I would sit there with my little typewriter in my lap and bang out all of these notes. And to me, those are some of the most precious things that I own. And in, in some ways, it was completing my PhD dissertation um, because I did used all of the techniques that I had learned in school and become, I, I would say, uh, a pretty good master of. I used all of those techniques to write this first book. And of course, that's the, uh, the book Authentic Mexican, which was published the same week that we opened our first restaurant, so 32 years ago, and um, it's obviously still in print, and uh, we're incredibly um, happy with that. And when I go back and read what I, what I wrote in that and all of the intense investigation that I did, um, I am so proud of it. I, it's like one of the best things that I ever did in my life, and so it's really wonderful to have all the notes for that book to be at the Smithsonian. And did they take your typewriter? They too? did. <laughs> and I think that that's really neat because you think, oh, it's just an object. But I think what I've learned from the museum is like you know the object becomes this jumping off point mm -hmm. to tell exactly that right. story. It stands in to symbolize. And so anyone who listens to this and then right. sees your typewriter will be like, oh, I know what he did with that and why exactly. it matters. I also donated a molcajete, a, a oh. Mexican mortar made out of a lava rock of basalt. 
And um, during the time when the Chicago Bulls were at their height during the Michael Jordan years, um, they one of the local grocery stores got somebody to make molcajetes that have the Bulls emblem etched on the back. So these were made in in the west central part of Mexico where they make a lot of the molcajetes and all inscribed with these uh, or chiseled out the, the bull's emblem and painted, very nicely, neatly painted. That's in the Smithsonian as well. So they took I your nicest multi that, that Well, it's it, to me, it was just one of the most hilarious things that I owned because it sort of said who I was. It was sort of Chicago and Mexico kind of all in one. And is it, did you say they're made of lava stone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I was just curious, what is what is that? Does obviously it's not random that they use lava stone or continue to? No, does it do a, something to the spices or the? It's a very um, the Mexico is a very uh, volcanic country, and so uh, basalt is this compressed lava rock. You get that tuft on the top, which is super lightweight, um, but the the next layers down become the basalt. And they're kind of compressed. So, yes, it's something that you can chisel fairly easily, but it's also something that's durable enough that you can use it rock against rock as you need for a mortar. And um, they're, in Mexico, they're using them as wet. Uh, most people think of a, of a mortar as something that you would crush dry spices in. But in Mexico, they do that some, but that's not the main intent for it. Really, you're going to be crushing like roasted tomatillos and roasted garlic and green chilies to make a salsa out of. And so they're used a lot in there uh, as a wet device. I see. Well, we'll come back to talking a bit more about Mexico and your love for Mexico in the second half. But just staying on the sort of award connection, you know, I certainly know from, you know, the jury and from the award process that giving back is a big part of your life now. And the foundation as part of the recognition of you being the second recipient made a grant to the Frontera Farmer Foundation Mm -hmm. in your honor. And um, so I just wanted to give you the opportunity and wanted to learn more both, you know, tell us what Frontera Farmer Foundation is and does and sort of what it's been been doing. I I would say that probably Julia knew, having come back from France to the United States during a period where you know, it was post-World War II, everything had become frozen and processed and all of that, and you couldn't get very good ingredients and that sort of thing, that, that Julia knew something that I learned later in my life, which was that if, you, if you're cooking in a place that doesn't have very good local agriculture, you're probably not going to be much of a cook because there's nothing to inspire you. And your, your fellow cooks in the neighborhood, chefs in the region, whatever, they're not going to be very inspired. Um, usually where there's really good local agriculture, there's really good cuisine. And certainly you, Julia had pinpointed that when she would talk about the breast chickens or whatever, the Normandy apples, whatever they might be. But she, she would sort of say that the, the cuisine that has, has, has um, risen up around those beautiful products is something that you should learn about. So in Mexico, it's exactly the same way, where there's really great local agriculture, there's really great cuisine. And it's much more complex in those places than in places where they don't have much agriculture. I got to Chicago, 
and um, decided that's where my wife grew up. And we decided we really wanted to live. I knew I needed to live in a major, major metropolitan area. I didn't have any contacts in New York. I had a really close contact in Los Angeles, but I didn't care for Los Angeles that much as a place that I wanted to put down deep roots. Um, and so we decided to try living in Chicago. But my biggest my biggest fear about Chicago is that at that point, it was really known as a meat and potatoes town, no no local agriculture, not a single farmer's market, uh, grocery stores. We had one good grocery store in town, but the rest of them were just rank and file grocery stores that didn't have anything out of the ordinary. And certainly all of the fresh fruits and, and vegetables were not that fresh. And so um, we, I thought we were going to have to do something here. And so from the very beginning of our restaurant, we sought out people that could grow for us and tried to help grow the farms. Um, that eventually turned into a no-interest uh, no loan program that we could um, that farmers could borrow against um, to get infrastructure things like hoop houses and watering systems and delivery vehicles and um, whatever it was that they needed to become more profitable and productive. And eventually we turned that into 501c3 not-for-profit um, so that we could actually give grants to the farmers. And um, one year uh, when we started this, the, the program of turning it into a not-for-profit, um, I had done a consulting job for some people, and I had made a lot of money in it. And I said, I'm going to take that money, and that's going to be the seed money for our foundation. And we put that in there and started it. And since then, we have um, we have raised over $3 million, um, and we do it literally from our customers. We have one big benefit a year. It just happened a couple of weeks ago, and we have that big benefit we have wonderful support from the local community and people come to it and they're very generous and we raise someplace around $200,000 in a night, which for agricultural things is a good thing. <laughs> it's not, um, not, not like what they raise in some of the other charities, but we only have 160 seats that we can fill up. So it's not one of those big four or 500 Do you do it in one thing. of your restaurants? Or? We do it in, uh, well, restaurants, the Frontera and Topolobampo are connected. So um, that's where we can do it. And we have 160 seats we can sell. So it's all about people um, doing things in our auction. And uh, we've just been so lucky. And usually during the year, um, like the grant that we got from the Julia Child Foundation, that went in there. Sometimes I do other projects, uh, consulting projects or whatever, and I will earmark those funds to go into our into our foundation. But we give away someplace around um, 12 to 15 grants a year. And what we've discovered is that farms, what they really need is an infusion of ten to $12,000 to get some sort of capital improvement going in their farms. Like and that's the threshold that makes That's kind of what makes a really big difference. Most of them will tell you that because farms are not very lucrative at all, that if you have a family farm and you wanted to raise $10,000 or you wanted to collect $10,000 that um, you, you could invest back in your your farm, it would probably take you five years to do that. So we think with each one of our grants, we are sort of uh, kicking into the future these farms. So we're touching like someplace in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 farms, or maybe sometimes as much as 15, depending on what their requests are. Um, uh, we're, we're really 
jumping them into the future five years. And that really, the stories they tell us, really, really changes their lives. And they're able to produce a lot more food just having the infrastructure to do that kind of thing. So we have been doing it now. We just had our 16th um, one of these benefit dinners, and um, we're, we've topped $3 million that we've invested into the, to our local agricultural economy, and it's really changed. Now, we've gone from 32 years ago not having any farmer's markets to having over 40 farmer's markets in the city of Chicago, and every chef worth his or her salt in town will be buying from local farms, and we've tried to make that uh, a real high priority that, we can, that they can actually get that produce. And are, so obviously there's a lot of Illinois that is agricultural. Are you, are you oh, but specifically that's not for looking, food. <laughs> no, uh, almost are you looking none, at a belt yeah. of farmers who are actually very proximate to Chicago itself um, or not no, necessarily? Actually, our 501c3 status um, requires that we, that we take applications from any Midwest farm. So there's five states that are are uh, denoted as the Midwest, and so anybody can. However, because we're in Chicago, and because we're most well-known in Chicago, most of the grant the grants that we get will be from someplace in Illinois, southern Wisconsin, northern Indiana, because we're all kind of together there, or southwestern Michigan. And southwestern Michigan is our major fruit-growing region, and literally you can drive from downtown Chicago on a Sunday morning to southwestern Michigan in an hour and 10 minutes. So it's really that close. And you've already gone through northern Indiana to get there. So we're right there where four states really come together. And so I will say that that's mostly where you will find the grant recipients. We're just about to go to a break, but I want to give you a chance to also mention about this new initiative that you're doing around culinary training. Can you tell us about oh, that? Oh, yes. I'm really passionate about that because we're in the throes of it. Um, we have had our first cohort go through. I, I realized a couple of years ago two things. One was that there is n the west side of Chicago is adjacent to where our restaurants are, and it is the most underserved part of Chicago. And yet I had no idea how to connect with it. And I wanted to do something there. And of course, a Probably all of our listeners have heard that there's an enormous shortage in the restaurant labor pool. And when I discovered that for young adults 16 to 24 years old on the west side of Chicago, there's an 80% unemployment rate. I said, there's got to be something that we can, we can do about this. So I had been sort of toying around with some sort of job readiness kind of program. And then I became aware of the, this project that was going in on the west side that is a food incubator. It's called the Hatchery. And it is right in the middle of that underserved neighborhood. But what they have put in there is 56 kitchens that are health department approved kitchens. So if you want to get your, your sort of... Um, little fledgling food business off the ground. You cottage can, industry. Your cottage industry kind of thing. You can rent one of those kitchens. And then they also give a lot of support in how to get loans to, to finance your business, um, all kinds of things about how to write business proposals, what to expect. Um, they will help you with financing. They're, they're, it's a really great organization. Um, so it's plunked down right in the middle of the neighborhood that I was most concerned about doing something in. And I said to the people whose idea this was to put this incubator in, 
I want two of those kitchens. I'm gonna, I want to put them together, make a teaching kitchen where we can actually be giving back to this neighborhood per se. So um, we started the program. Uh, it took a year for us to develop it. We got somebody from Kendall College, which is our premier culinary program in Chicago. We got them to um, work on uh, the uh, curriculum for us. It's an eight-week curriculum. Um, we have funded the whole thing because most of the young adults in the neighborhood can't afford to go to culinary school, even at a, a modest price. So um, it, it's in, you have to apply for it, and if you get accepted into it, there's no tuition for you. But we take you through eight weeks of culinary training, and the coolest, coolest, coolest part of this whole thing is that the chefs of Chicago have really gotten behind this program. And so almost every single day during that two months, you will have a working chef from Chicago they are teaching. We have a culinary instructor that leads up the whole program, and that's the person you would interact with as a student most. But then almost every single day, there is a chef from Chicago that's a working chef that comes in and says what their story is, what they're looking for in in um, in um, cooks that come in to work with them, and then teaches them one of the blocks. And so that's turned out to be really good. And then the coolest part of this program uh, really is that we have a four-week mentorship program. So all of those chefs that come in to teach, they will each take one of the students, and they will work with them for four weeks. So what you come out with, you've gone in with nothing. You come out with your uniforms, your knife bag, um, eight weeks of intense training, and then a, you're a mentee to a, a well-known chef in town who writes a letter of recommendation for you. So our goal is to offer opportunity where there was no opportunity before. And this is, I, I'm really passionate about it because everybody told us that we should only expect about a 50% graduation rate um, in, because we're working with an underserved neighborhood and a lot of times they don't quite understand, you know, what they're getting into and all that. We had a hundred percent uh, graduation rate. Super excited about that part of it. Um, then they went to their um, their mentorship apprenticeship uh, section, and we had thirteen of our sixteen um, make it through um, unscathed with that. And to tell you the truth, our restaurants hired three of them already. And so we're really we we're really excited about the possibilities, both for the youth, young adults of this neighborhood, and for the restaurant world. And I think it's going to integrate our restaurant world in a way that it, we are all going to be grateful for in the next few years. That truly sounds terrific. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back to talk with Chef Rick Bayless about his passion for Mexico and Mexican food. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Since the mid-1800s, before Wisconsin was even recognized as a state, its resident cheesemakers have been putting the art into artisan cheese. When early settlers from Switzerland, Germany, and Italy came to Wisconsin, they brought their cheesemaking expertise with them. They chose Wisconsin because the terroir reminded them of the homes they'd left behind in northern Europe. The soil and water of Wisconsin is nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin's cheesemakers draw from their rich European heritage and cheesemaking traditions, 
and combine them with incredible innovation to produce half of the nation's specialty cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers never stop experimenting, trying to improve, and dreaming of your next favorite cheese that has yet to be imagined. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Rick Bayless about being a Julia Child Award recipient and about his deep appreciation for Mexican food. So we already kind of touched on this, but I wanted mm-hmm. to explore it a bit more. And you were very, very uh, eloquently saying, you know, the Julia connection, she fell in love with France and French food and became this, you know, came back to America with this passionate advocacy for it. And, you know, to a large degree, you've done the same with Mexico and Mexican food, as you were talking about. And you started to go there, but we didn't quite cover mm-hmm. it, where, you know, Julia had her famous eating sole Munier at mm-hmm. La Corone in Rouen, and that was her epiphany moment that led her into this path. You were talking about your five years there. Did you have an epiphany moment, or was it more about that whole period? Um, it Actually, the epiphany moment would probably have been long before that five-year period of being there. And I I fell in love with Mexican culture before I fell in love with Mexican food. And um, I I just loved it and had the opportunity when I was in high school. I went to Mexico the first time when I was 14 years old. And then um, I got to go back every year during high school and then again when I was in college. Um, so I, but I was only focused on Mexican culture really. And because wherever you go, you have to eat. Um, I kind of absorbed some stuff about Mexican food, but I will say if I had an, a sort of epiphany moment, it was oh, when I was 16 and I was on one of these sort of school trips and we all went to this place, um, the, uh, you know, I've always been interested in language. So we uh, we were visiting a linguistics center north of Mexico City. And on the way back, our host said, um, I'm going to take you to this place. This woman makes this really great mole. So um, I didn't never had mole before, didn't really know what it was. Um, it seemed like that everybody in the group was sort of like, oh, mole, do you like it or do you not like it? And it's like sort of uh, polarizing and all that sort of stuff. And we went to this place, and it truly was an old gas station that had been converted into a tiny little uh, family-run restaurant. And I walked in, and there was um, it, it smelled of charcoal. It was in very or, or it's aromatic. Very aromatic, but this place smelled. No, it didn't smell the good part. It's, no, it smelled first and foremost of charcoal cook. Uh, and so I was interested in that, and what was that? So I peered in, and the woman said, "You can come back here." And she was cooking in basically what we would call a trough that was filled with charcoal because she had no natural gas or anything for a stove. So she was cooking on charcoal, and she had this pot, um, uh, an earthenware pot. The typical cazuela from Mexico glazed on the inside, unglazed on the outside, and it was nestled into the coals, and it was gurgling away with this mole. And I, first of all, I, I just I had no idea how to decipher what I was smelling. And then we sat down and we ate it, and it was like, I don't know. The only way I can ever describe this moment was that it was like when you hear a symphony playing, and, you know, it's like nothing, no instrument is soaring above any other instrument. It's just the complexity and, and strength of that, that unified sound. Well, I could say it was the complexity and strength of that unified flavor. And I, it was many years later that I realized that if you ever 
comment uh, to a cook about their mole and you go, oh, yes, I could taste a little bit of cinnamon or the black pepper or the chocolate or whatever that's in there. Um, that's the, the, the biggest um, sin in the way that you would talk to somebody because nobody, it, you're never supposed to... The mole is to, about the blend. It's, it's about the blend. Harmony. And it's about it, total harmony. And it, it's like saying, oh, yeah, I could hear the first violin playing over there. <laughs> the that would be a terrible <laughs> symphony, you know? And so you you want that same thing in, in your mole. You want everything to be resonant. And I got that. And I, you know, it's the, it's mostly these village cooks that are so amazing in their techniques and the way that they can cook. And there's not the pressure. The, the village cooks don't have the pressure. <laughs> they're not worried about stuff. the Pete Wells review. They aren't. <laughs> and they're not, re- they're not worried about getting dinner on, on the table at a certain moment. <laughs> they have time to actually do it. And there's, it's just, I, I will tell our listeners, if you have not gotten into the, the YouTube, um, the, the channel that is called um, De Mi Rancho a Tu Cocina, um, that you have to go watch it. It's, it, is a, it is a Pueblo cook um, in, from Michoacan, and she shows you how to make all of the classic dishes from that area. And she cooks over a wood fire, and there's dozens of these things. And she's great on camera, but she's not like a TV personality. She's just like just doing no, her thing. Come, come on in, come on in. And she always starts it off and says, "Well, my people, welcome, welcome to my kitchen. I'm going to show you how to make this thing. I think it's delicious. I'm going to show you how to make it my way." And she does. And I, it's the perfect example. If anyone wants to know how I wrote all of my books. It was by working with people just like this woman. It's it's a really fun YouTube series to look at, but um, and it's not it's her daughter or granddaughter that is shooting the whole thing like on a, a smartphone, and um, that's all it is. It's edited. The whoever like take downloads the stuff edits it a lot so that it doesn't just drag on and on and on. But um, I think it's just super cool, and it's a and perfect. I assume it's in Spanish. It's in Spanish, but with English subtitles. Oh, so you don't Not even... very good English <laughs> translations, but certainly enough to, for you to understand what's going on. So it's like it's accessible to everybody, and it's just super cool because I, every time I, it makes me so nostalgic because that's how I did all of my research for my certainly my first book and and subsequent books as well. I want to use just started to touch on this before when we, when you're talking about like if you find local produce you're going to f- more likely to find more exciting cooking and I'm struck by the fact as I mean you've discovered it a long time ago but I think it's still kind of unfolding to people outside of Mexico of how sophisticated and complex the food culture is there and sort of more so to some degree than other places in in Central America and South America it really stands out so what do you think it is what why and I, maybe it's a Spanish influence but that exists elsewhere oh, no no like no, no, what what is Spanish it about influence, yeah no. what is it about Mexico that well okay so there were basically three really great pre-Columbian cultures in the in the Americas um there was the uh, Aztec that we know the most, the Mayan, which came quite a bit before the Aztecs, and then the Incas down in Peru. And um, where you find the greatest complexity of food is where those cultures were. But because the Mayan culture was dispersed by the time the Spaniards arrived in Mexico in 1519, um, we don't see as much of that or as much complexity from that. But when you find 
a place like Mexico City, which was built on the the same ground that Tenochtitlan, the the capital of the Aztec Empire, which was really, really an enormous empire. Uh, when you find that, and so you've got an area that was the the court cuisine of the Aztecs, followed by the court cuisine of the Spaniards. And the one thing that happened in Mexico that didn't happen anywhere else, including Peru, you get vestiges of it in Peru, but there was a complete, uh, what they call mestizaje, or blending of the the pre-Columbian cultures with the, the Spanish culture. Um, and they, those two cultures could not be any more different from a culinary perspective, the pre-Columbian culture is almost entirely vegetarian, and the Spanish culture was almost entirely a meat and, and meat and wheat yeah, <laughs> culture. Potatoes. And so it was very well, actually, sorry, it wasn't potatoes. It wasn't right? potatoes. No, it, it was wasn't later. potatoes at all. It was meat and wheat. It's really what it was. And then, um, and so the, when those two cultures came together, um, both were enriched in a really fascinating way. And I, most people uh, kind of point to the convents because um, all of the novitiates that were coming into the convents were really the the young um, indigenous population that was there. And it was a lot in those kitchens where you had the Spanish nuns and you had the indigenous novitiates. And of course, the Spanish nuns thought that they were going to, to sort of whip the 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 bad out of this indigenous culture and make them good Christians. Um, but what happened in the kitchens was a whole lot. Affected by mole. <laughs> it was. And in fact, you know, they always say that this, the, that mole poblano, probably the most famous mole from, from Mexico, was um, was developed in the Santa Rosa convent, which you can go to in Puebla these days. And you can see that kitchen, which is sort of like my holy grail to go back to this place. I just got the chance to do it again last year. And I just, I, I feel like I should genuflect when I walk in there. Well, mole is really one of the craziest dishes in the in in Mexico's repertoire because you think of it as a, a at, at its root as a chili sauce and so those are indigenous ingredients but 50% of the ingredients were brought by the Spaniards either from Southeast Asia through the Manila galleons which were plying those waters for four or five centuries there or they came from Europe and so this really truly is <laughs> when you say mole is like this really classic um, uh, indigenous kind of thing. No, it's not. It's actually a it's perfect. It's a fusion <laughs> dish. It's a total fusion dish, and that's what makes it so exciting to me. Because what was created in Mexico with the fusion of indigenous Southeast Asian and and Spanish or European stuff is one of the greatest cuisines I think in the world. Now, I I am obviously incredibly biased, and I can say that, but I can say that puffing my chest up, but I can also sort of step back and say, kind of as an anthropologist, I, I think there's probably a good reason to think that, yeah, it probably is. The one thing that um, you can say about Mexican food that um, is really at its heart um, true is that with all of these influences that came from all over the place, the flavors are really varied. Like you go, like French food is all seasoned within a very narrow range. Italian food is seasoned within a very narrow range. 
Mexican food is seasoned, it's like in a huge wide spectrum. And you have the dishes that are high in acid and low in acid and spicy and not spicy and all about meat or nothing about meat. So you get a whole lot of variety in the Mexican kitchen, which is one of the things that has been my mission to to talk about, um, to show, to cook, to cook all of these years. Because um, when you say Mexican food in the United States, basically what you're saying is Mexican American food, and that's that is a much narrower range of dishes. But when you travel through Mexico, especially as regionally varied as Mexican cuisine is, when you travel to the different regions, you're just blown. I am blown away, and I've been doing this for over 40 years. But I will say I am blown away at how incredibly diverse things are. I was just recently in Oaxaca, and I went to a small a mountain village, and it was like, what? <laughs> these people are making what here? I've never seen that in all of these years. But it's a very diverse cuisine, and one that I think is, um, is super exciting. Well, I wanted to ask you what some may consider a sensitive question, but I think you're bold enough to tackle it. So you've been talking quite passionately about everything you've learned and how strongly you believe in the incredibleness of, mm -hmm. of, of Mexican food. And, you know, you've even received one of Mexico's, Mexico's highest honors to foreigners mm -hmm. for your work, like Julia did in France. You've gotten the Mexican Order of the Aztec Eagle. Mm -hmm. But certainly what's been going on now, there's been a lot of sensitivity, and you're obviously not Mexican, um, so how do you kind of approach, because obviously you've made quite 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 a good living and success over this idea of cultural appropriation and who has the right to cook whose food. So given that you're you're very well qualified to talk about this, what, what what's your perspective well, on that? Okay, so basically I entered this all from the anthropology side. And um, so what we were trained to do was to be participant observers. So you can sit a, sit at the edge and of the, the room and watch people do things and write things down, but you're not going to have the same experience with it as if it, it, when you're sitting on the side versus when you're a, a participant in it. So if you don't ever learn to cook it and you're starting to work on talking about Mexican food, then you're your your material is going to be really shallow. Um, and so I had always wanted to be the participant observer. Number one, my goal was always to promote Mexico, um, not to promote me as, and I will say, and it's a, it's a hard thing to sort of balance, but I will say that still to this day, I will walk through our dining rooms and somebody in that dining room will be bringing their friends to, the, to eat at our restaurant and they'll go, well, he calls it Mexican food, but it's not really Mexican food. This is his food. And so we're, we're eating in this famous restaurant, this famous chef's restaurant, um, but he calls it Mexican, but it's really not. When that's never what I have ever done. In fact, we talk in all of our training, and we have massive amounts of training in our, in our restaurant, both for cooks and for front of the house staff. Our goal, we have one goal, and it's stated in our mission for our restaurant, and that is to promote the the richness of Mexican culture through the food. So if you do it that way, then I think I mean you can you can say I don't cook well. <laughs> okay. You could you can you can not if you've eaten there, but okay. But you you can fault me on that, but you can't fault me on 
trying to take center stage because I've never done that. All I've done is try to promote and, and have promoted. That's the reason my television shows are the way that they are, um, that every show is half shot in Mexico because I want people to see the culture. And then once you're inspired by that culture, then I'm going to take you through the step-by-steps of how to create a dish that will speak to that culture, who will represent that culture. So from that standpoint, um, it's hard to call it. It's hard to call it appropriation and not anthropology. Fair enough. So, do you think, on that note, given that you have a diversity of Mexican restaurants in terms of focusing yeah. on different styles and things like that, will you ever open a French restaurant? <laughs> it's very. You know, this is this whole thing is really um, interesting to me because what most people don't know is that when I decided to go back to food when I took that year off from writing my dissertation and I got to the place where I was, I, I had to, re- uh, to recognize that I was more interested in the relationship between culture and food than language and uh, culture and language. And, um, but I was making my living teaching French food um, because I had because I had studied so much Julia, honestly, that was what it was. I had never been to France, but I, I was actually a pastry chef, and I, my specialty was French pastry. And I had learned it all from Julia and a few other books that I had. Did you go to culinary school? Or no? I never did, because yeah. back when I was coming up through the ranks, there were very few culinary schools in existence. And I went to graduate school at University of Michigan, and there was one culinary school that was in, in Detroit, but um, it seemed soulless to me, and it, like it was turning out technicians, and I was really interested in this relationship between culture and food, and I just felt like they didn't have any of that cultural part of it. So I chose not to do that, and instead to just practice and practice and practice and practice. And thanks to people like Julia, I was able to actually learn how to make this stuff. But so a lot of times people um, don't realize how deep my my knowledge of French food is, (laughs) but um, that's really where I started out. And I opened a small catering uh, business during that, that one year period that I was taking off from graduate school. And um, basically all I catered was French food. Um, There was a, obviously a demand for that kind of thing. Um, And it was at the end of that year that I said, actually, what I want to do is to um, begin to promote Mexican food and learn more about it. But um, at that point in my life, I wasn't very good at Mexican food because I hadn't cooked very much of it. I was really good at French food and French and baking mostly. Well, that's so. Who that's, knows? I may open up. I know. A French I know. Restaurant. I'm thinking now, like you're going to have to have Rick's pastry shop. I know. Well, well, I I cook at home every weekend. Um, my weekend is Sunday Monday, and um, so I I cook at home, and I'm I every weekend I bake something, and I bake complicated and hard things because I like that. If I was I gonna have, say what's your best French pastry or what or that um, you love the I'm, best I'm a real tart guy, so I was like I like that kind of thing. I grew up in a pie family and so um I love pies and tarts. Um but I actually just love everything that's made out of batashu, you know, cream puff dough. And so I I um, make a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, Pari breast is going to be on the the menu in a few days here. Um, partly because I went to this restaurant and they and they had it on the menu. I was like, oh god, this is great! And it was so bad that I thought I've got to clear <laughs> that to out of my, my mind. So I'm making one this weekend. 
Okay, well, that sounds something to look forward to. So are you a Mexican food devotee? What's your favorite Mexican dish or favorite Mexican region? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Let us know. After the break, Rick's going to reveal his Julia moment. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, well, Rick, you've already kind of covered it, but do you, ha- do you have a, a, a I, solo separate I do. Julia moment? No, I do. Um, and uh, I was invited to be on that last series that Julia did, Julia Cooks with the Master Chefs. And the, the thing was, I, I have already told you that my favorite Julia book is uh, from Julia's Kitchen. And I... I had, there's a part of it that, where there's these black and white photos of her kitchen. And um, I had like, I had gone over those and over those and over those and over those. And so I felt like when I got to her house that I I had been there before. (laughs) It was like, to me, I, I, this is a crazy moment that I'm walking into a place I already know, but I've never been here before. Yeah. And um, the... I, I walked in, and I was obviously super nervous. I had met Julia several times before, but I'd clearly never been to her house. Um, I'd done a lot of television work, but um, and the, the crazy thing was I did a television show that nobody knows about. It was 26-part for PBS back in the very early days of PBS um, when there were no shows. It was just Julia and um, the Frugal Gourmet um, and then there was Graham Care that was on regular um, uh, broadcast and not not uh, public television. And um, so I would, <laughs> so I did this twenty part, twenty six part series, and um, we had no staff at all. And at lunchtime, Julia would come on every day, and I would just sit in front of this little monitor and I would watch a Julia show before I taped my show to watch every movement she made, all of the ways that she engaged the camera. I did all those kind of things. Okay, so here I am many years later, and I have, I have seen that kitchen so much. I know this kitchen and everything, and I walk into it, and they say, oh, Julia's upstairs, and it's very early in the morning, and they said, Julia's, what, go up to Julia's bedroom. Well, this is like, what? <laughs> I know, this is just weird. So no, that's where they're doing the makeup, okay? So... I walk into Julia's bedroom and Julia's there and they're putting, touching up her makeup or whatever. And she says, um, she, I had my chef coat and, and she said, um, in the typical Julia way, she, she, um, grabbed my chef coat and she said, um, she said, uh, put it on the, she put it on the, the, the ironing board there. Oh, 
those are Paul's ashes. Just move them over there. And I thought to myself, I'm not believing that this is really happening, that she was just so transparent, so who she was. I thought she would probably be, you know, sort of uptight about the, the filming that we were doing. And no, she was just completely at ease, which of course put me completely at ease. And that after we did our run through of the whole thing, um, she said, you want to stay for dinner? <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, this is like, that was my Julia moment, that I got a chance to just hang out. And when you're shooting TV, I do it in my house all the time too. And everything is just moved and everything's kind of crazy and all that. And Julia was like, just say, no, just move a chair over here. And somebody came in with some food and, and she said, oh, he said he'd come over and cook, cook this because we had it <laughs> left over from yesterday's shoot or whatever. And so we just sat around this table and had the most lively, beautiful conversation with Julia hopping up and down, go look up words in the dictionary and stuff in her encyclopedia and all that sort of stuff. She was the most curious person I'd ever met in my life. And this was the day before her 82nd birthday. And all I could think was, that's who I want to be at 82. <laughs> she, was, she was just so transparent, so beautiful, and so curious. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was so yeah. well. I was completely transported to being <laughs> with you in the Cambridge kitchen. That was lovely. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us. My pleasure. This has been really, really fun. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Your portal to all things Rick Bayless is really easy. Just go to rickbayless.com. It's all right there. To keep up with Rick's many pursuits, he's at Rick underscore Bayless on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find him on Facebook on at Chef Rick Bayless and or at Frontera Grill, which is also the restaurant's Instagram handle. To hear the latest about this year's Julia Child Award Gala and from Smithsonian Food History Weekend, follow us at Julia Child on Facebook at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N, on Twitter. You can find out more about the Julia Child Award and all the past recipients on juliachildaward.com. There's even a new video about the award coming soon. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Give us a review. It really helps listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>